So as is tradition, it seems every time Phil comes to New York City, he comes to my studio and we we record a pod. So he's actually right here with me. This feels like Charlie Rose or something. I'm sitting right across <laughs> from him. And yeah. we're doing a one-on-one. There's so. a completely black, <laughs> opaque background behind us, like in Charlie Rose or something. Uh, yeah. Escape from Plan A. So what are you saying? That, that uh, natives uh, have an inferiority complex? Is when something happens some, to them? I said you'd have to ask Chris, but if, why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't some kids feel like they haven't been given a fair shake in life? Fair shake in life. Go out and get your own fair shake in life and work for it. Don't give me that stuff. Don't give me that. It's like Ted Nolan. When Ted Nolan didn't get the job, it was racism. It was wasn't racism. Him and Muckler didn't got out of it. Welcome to this episode of Escape from Plan A, Plan A Mag's podcast. So tonight, uh, I have Philip here with me, and we are going to talk about... Well, Philip and I are both from Canada and we wanted to talk about what it was like growing up there and this topic interested me because if you if you go to a lot of forums and and uh, Asian subreddits one of the most common questions asked almost as a point of parody <laughs> is somebody will inevitably ask is X a good city for Asians or Asian guys or mm-hmm. something like that and I think this talks to this uh, belief that somewhere out there there is a promised land where <laughs> Like all the troubles that you are having in in your current place will go away if you move move there. And often Canada is touted as a, one of these potential places. Right. By by like all races, you you always hear this every election. You always hear like white people saying if if someone something if this happens and I'm moving to Canada. Right. 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 And there, Canada does have this image of basically being America without the baggage. Mm. Right. What do you think, Philip? Without the, if I may be so bold, without the racism. Some people feel. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, there's definitely... And, and you grew up in, in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Um, and I grew up in Toronto. And I think as the two largest cities... I think there are two largest cities. Yeah. Um, yeah. With Montreal. Montreal's somewhere up there. Yeah. yeah. Um, definitely places touted as, like, being kind of like New York with less stuff and less racism. Or, like, less of these kind of negative elements of what people think of uh, the bad parts of America. Right? Uh-huh. Um, and... You know, we'll get into it, but I don't necessarily know how true that is, right? But there's this kind of stereotype about Toronto being America light in that regard. Yeah. Before we delve into it, just before we start this podcast, Philip and I uh, went and uh, look, looked up some of the stats mm-hmm. uh, on the demographic breakdown. So in Canada, Asians, which includes both, uh, I mean, all of East, Southeast, and South Asians, are the biggest minority group, comprising about about 17%, right? That's right. Uh, which is, I mean, to put that into perspective, I think the Latino population is somewhere around 15% in America. The African-American population is somewhere around 13%. So in Canada, uh, the, the biggest minority group are, are Asians. Uh, and then if you look at our two cities, Vancouver has an extraordinarily high Asian population. And if you count East and Southeast Asian as one group, what was it, like 37%? Yeah, yeah and just a couple points underneath the white population. Uh, the white population in Vancouver is something like 39%. Yeah, right. percent. Yeah. And the South Asian population in Vancouver is, what was it? Somewhere in the teens, right? Yeah, in the teens somewhere. Yeah, um, I think it was like the mid to high teens. Yeah. If you combine them, it definitely eclipses the white population. So if you combine them, they are actually the majority group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Toronto, the, the stats, what were the numbers again? Uh, way less Asian than uh, Vancouver, but it's still very multi-ethnic. Um, I think whites are now just under 50% of Toronto in terms of uh, population and the visible minorities make up of like 51% or so 
And then Asians within that are a lot smaller. I think they're in the teens, like around 15%, East and Southeast Asians. Um, and then South Asians, if you add them as well, they're also in the teens as a, a pretty large represented group in Toronto. Uh, having grown up there, like these numbers actually are pretty in line with what I've seen on the street, um, down to the fact that, for example, Koreans and Japanese within East Asians are much less represented than um, the Chinese, for example. But Philip, you said that where you grew up, in Ontario, there weren't a lot of East Asians where you were. Oh, so, so I mean, like, if you want to get down into the nitty gritty, I grew up in this um, part of Toronto, uh, the, the northwestmost part of Toronto, that's still Toronto before it becomes like the greater Toronto area, um, called uh, Etobicoke or Rexdale, this particular area. And uh, it's actually a very largely South Asian and black neighborhood. We were actually like one of the only Asian families within like a you know, multi-kilometer radius. Like, it was very, very strange. And it wasn't until I started going to school in South Etobicoke, a more affluent part of uh, Western Toronto, that I started meeting other Asians in school. Um, and also there, it was also super white. So Yeah, and looking at the stats for Vancouver, that actually lines up very well with my experience. My school experience, generally, it always seemed like it was like a 50-50 with, with uh, East Asian with, mm-hmm. with some South Asian mm-hmm. uh, made up about 50% and white students made up the other 50%. And in high school, I remember that causing uh, some tension because <laughs> at that point, the, the Asian population becomes big enough to actually start sh- uh, shaping the culture around. How so? So, for, ex- for example, our, our, my high school, we had like a set of traditions. Like we were, I mean, this is kind of odd, I guess, for, for a Canadian, especially like an urban Canadian school. Yeah, we were really into football, <laughs> like American football. Football, football, not yeah. soccer, football. Like Handig. Yeah, uh, okay, hand, American Handig. I I played on the team for three and a half years. I was a wide receiver. I was wow. Not, okay. Cool. I was not very good. I in in uh, my varsity career, I had one catch for like eight yards. <laughs> and actually, but I was, and this was one of the proudest moments of my high school career. At the at kind of like the like all the senior banquet after our season was over, like coach yeah. would go up there and, and talk about. Like so and so was like the leader of our defense, and like so and so was like the the heart of our like like offense or whatever. When he came to me, he could have just said, "Oh, he's like a generic, like work hard kind of guy," but yeah. he actually said that I was one of those locker room characters that every team needs <laughs> for like morale. Because I was I was like, um, we played like all these games where we pretty much roast each other on the yeah. school bus, yeah, and I was the best. At that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so everyone was terrified of me like kind of like how you might be terrified of, of the big guy who might tackle you in the right. open field everyone was terrified that i would you roasting uh, them uh, on the school bus totally <laughs> to the burn unit. yeah uh, that's that's actually interesting right from a cultural perspective because canada is associated with hockey and exactly. i know you and i both grew up watching hockey still kind of caring maybe you last me a little bit more about hockey but even in my school, in my high school in, in, you know, East Coast or in Toronto, there was some football culture. Like getting on the football team was a big deal for a lot of guys. I'm not, I wasn't on the football team, but some of my, my guy friends, um, uh, all white guys in this, in this case, were like at one point obsessed about being first string. Oh, yeah. On the, I don't even know what that means. What does that mean? Well, that means you're a starter. Okay. Like be, getting into first string, right? <laughs> Whatever, right? Um, and I was always like, really? Like, we care about football here? Like, this is a... Yeah, I think that's because um, hockey is big, but it's not associated with schools, right? You go to, like, your local like, community right. center or 
or there might be like a, like a some like junior league, league team, yeah. But, league team, but like yeah. I I don't know if like schools themselves have because it's you need a rink. It, it's a very expensive sport. It is for a school to support. It is and like basketball people like, but to make a basketball team because they're so small is so right. hard. Right. Um. So I think like football at least. Uh. I mean the good thing about our school is because it's so big. Pretty much as long as you were like dedicated enough to show up to practice, uh-huh. you weren't gonna get cut. <laughs> uh, so you just have to be dedicated and and not be afraid of. Uh, like getting hit or running a lot so right which is yeah. all things that i'm terrified of so <laughs> but i enjoyed it uh yeah. it, you get to hang out with your friends and stuff although i was very glad when as like i was a senior and the last practice ended I was like yes i'm free <laughs> it's done yeah it's done. Uh, okay we should get we should get back to culture uh, uh, yeah but anyway a lot of pillows, so but... this was my high school they, they mm-hmm. were really big into that i mean it was a catholic high school so there was a lot okay. of like irishness that, that kind of spirit uh and i remember a lot of the white kids starting to grumble once the population was getting noticeably Asian. Oh. So like all, all like the traditions we had around football. Okay, and, okay. So for some context around what year was this? Like 2001? Like okay, this so like, this is like early 2000s. Early 2000s. From like 2002 okay. to 2006. So the Asian population started picking up. Uh, yeah, because I remember when I was growing up, most of the Asians I knew were Hong Kong immigrants. Yep. yep. Uh, but by the time it was like, I think the late 90s to, to early 2000s, we started to see a lot of mainland Chinese come, That's right. and a lot of Koreans. Although those oh. Koreans were international students, so either so a lot of times what you what would happen is um, I forgot what the term for this was. It, it's something like a I want to say something like a goose. Fa- I'm not sure, but it's it's actually quite heartbreaking if you think about it. So th- so the dads had to stay in Asia because they start to work. Uh-huh. So the moms and the kids uh-huh. would like immigrate to Canada. Although I don't think it was a permanent immigration. I'm not sure. But it's so the kids could go to a high school in English. Or I mean, a high school in Canada so they could become fluent in English yeah. and go to university in Canada, which yeah. was much easier to get into than the top schools in Korea right, right, or right. Asia. Yeah. Uh, but it, pretty much the families had to separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I saw a lot of that. Or you have like the, the astronaut kids, which were the really rich uh, families who just send their kids they would, they're like buy or rent a big home to send their kid yeah. to to live there maybe with like a some kind of supervisor and this is I think when you get when you hear about like the, the bad Asian kids the ones who just drink and party all the time because you have no supervision <laughs> right. and too much money but that was the changing culture okay. as I was in high school okay and so it got to an inflection point where white students were noticing almost equal numbers in class right that's what you're saying yeah and okay. it was the Asian student was big enough to for example. Um, if they decided not to show up to like a football game, yeah, that, that would noticeably make kind of, have an impact. Like wow. if there's like a big rivalry game with yeah. one of our one of our like uh, rival schools, yeah, and our school like the Asian kids didn't show up, that would really you, you could easily notice it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, so th- this is fascinating to me because I don't think we had because Vancouver is almost a parody in terms of white versus Asian, and you see that in the schools. We never had that, so there was mm-hmm. never this kind of boiling over point. Was was there, was there like overt racism that came up during this time? Like, uh, I there's some things like for example, if there's like a particularly like pick honorable Asian kid, okay, I felt like that person would make an easy target just because like all the white kids would bully him, and even yeah. like the Asian kids. Uh, I also went to an all boys school, so uh, there are no girls here. Mm-hmm. Even the Asian kids like don't want to be associated with someone like that. Um, okay, and I remember a student election. Like, like student elections, there would be like two of the highest positions. Right. And it pretty much came down to race. Right. You would have the white winner and, and the Asian winner. Okay. Um, 
so that was like an example. So, so was that like the most popular white guy in the school and the most popular Asian guy in the school? Like how did basically, that play out? yeah. It was not done on any sort of merit around like academic standing or anything. I mean, like, come on, it's a high school election. I know. I, know. I just want. I just want <laughs> to know if there's any kind of banana republic. So Got it. Like, okay. Didn't really matter who won. It was a popularity contest. But there's no. There's not two presidents. Like who won? Who actually won? Uh, well, I don't know what they weren't president. I don't know what we called them. It was just like class. Rep. Yeah, the rep. Right? Yeah, whatever, yeah, whatever it was called. So was it the white guy? Hmm? Was it the white guy or is it both? Well, no, we'd have two. You just have two? Yeah. Because there is... Oh, you're saying because they someone internally had made a conscious decision I don't to not know. choose one. I don't know, but... Well, let's get real. That's what it was about. If well, you, I don't know how, how long the, the history of, of the of the two-headed, the two, the two-headed, the two-headed government yeah. was. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's how it worked out. That's one instance I remember. Wow. Okay. Okay, so it's interesting because like all this played out because of equal numbers right like i think it wouldn't play out the same way if it didn't if there were not equal numbers of one ethnic group versus white people yeah. in the school yeah right? i mean there, there's all sorts of papers and studies to show that like, like the reason why for example in the american south why one of the reasons why racism is so rampant there is because uh that's where most uh, black people in america live you look uh-huh. at a state like i think mississippi like i think the black population is like 30 to 40 percent right where like if, the, if they act as a block Mm-hmm. They could exert considerable political power as, which a, voting, is why, as a voting block. Yeah, which is why right. the whites act as a block. Right. Whereas if the population was more like 10, 13%, which blacks are nationally, right. then the white people, they can kind of, then they fight amongst themselves. Right. right? So, so that's true then in Vancouver for municipal and also provincial, maybe even federal politics, are there Asian voting blocs? See, I, um, I was like, I was kind of too young to get involved politically in Canada. And then my, my family doesn't even live there anymore. And right. I haven't been to Vancouver in a long time. I first went back there a couple of years ago for a high school friend's bachelor party. Okay. So I haven't really kept in touch with how politics works there, but I am sure that like the Asian vote is very important. Okay. Because I, you know, there's this, there's also this kind of like feeling that Asian Americans, Asian Canadians are not very politically activated compared to other groups um what i have seen in canadian politics is that there are going there are always politicians who are in municipalities or ridings or whatever regions um that have a lot of asian voters they also have to they have to specifically pander to the asian population like markham right there's this um area called markham it's a city attached to toronto in the northeast it's an enclave it's it's super super um, originally Cantonese Chinese and now increasingly mainland Mandarin speaking Chinese and the mayor is actually white um, I've seen the guy at an event actually I went to like a night market that Markham holds because it's, it's they have they like replicate a lot of um, Taiwanese and like Chinese um, events out there uh, and they would come and speak they would come and have like a whole you know not a rally but they would come and like speak out and like support maybe even sponsor these events because they want to get the Chinese vote because it's a huge group for them there right so, but when you actually zoom out a little bit into Canadian federal politics, that writing is actually much smaller. It may not matter so much. And then Asians, their, their vote doesn't seem to matter as much as, say, in the black vote block, the voting block that you gave an example of in yeah. America. Oh, just to give people uh, a quick lesson on how Canadian parliamentary politics works. Super and you can, you can correct me anytime because this is like... You probably ele- know more than I do. No, this is elementary school civics that I, I'm trying to regurgitate here, but... Unlike uh, American politics in which it 
in which you got like the the fucked up electoral college, mm-hmm. and you like elect the pre it's a presidential system, so you elect the head of state separately from your legislature and all that. Right. But in Canada, every I I think our equivalent of the congressional district is the riding. Right? Ridings, right? And and whoever whichever party wins the the most ridings becomes the party in power. Right. And whoever that party chose as its leader becomes prime minister. That's right. So the prime minister is not directly That's right. elected. So let's say in Markham, let's say some like Chinese person becomes the MP, member of parliament of Markham. That's right. Uh, for let's say the Liberal Party. Yeah. And the Liberal Party chooses that guy or woman to be its party leader. Mm-hmm. If the Liberals win, that person becomes prime minister. Right. That's right. Yeah. If that would so, ever happen. It so. Just in guess, Trudeau instead. But yeah, yeah. So in the in this instance, uh, um, uh, like uh, an Asian candidate would not have to win over the whole country. All they have to do is win over their own party and win their own riding. Right. And become prime minister. Right. Um, that's true. Um, but the way it plays out is a little bit different, right? Like in the sense that because there are these enclaves and kind of clusters of people by ethnicity in. Canada still is, you know, this, and maybe that's part of our kind of mosaic versus melting pot approach to multiculturalism. Um, you do have folks voting in people who look like them, for sure, right? There's writings, a number of writings in like the Toronto area where it's like a Chinese dude in a large like Chinatown, right, in Toronto, um, who's voted in pretty consistently, right? But that's just one seat in Parliament. It doesn't necessarily mean you have much more influence beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. If, the math plays out differently when you have voting blocks in the states where you're voting for president. I know we've talked to folks from like the A was API or whatever. AAPI. API. Yeah. Um, my bad. And you know they're, they're really talking about Asians becoming a very serious voting block, but it has to be in a system where that has more weight at the federal level, right? Which may not be the case in Canada. Yeah. Okay. Moving away from uh, politics for a second, uh, as I said, Canada does have. A reputation for being one of the best places uh, for if you're an Asian to grow up in. So, Philip, what do you think? I mean, we all could only have grown up in one place, really, unless you like moved around a lot and you spent equal time mm-hmm. in every place. Mm-hmm. But, like, generally speaking, like, what was it? Do you think it was positive, or uh, what were some of the negatives? So, I I was born in uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba. Um, and I moved at a pretty young age to Toronto, to Ontario, Toronto. Okay, just for context, uh, America. What what do you think is the equivalent of Winnipeg in America uh, to America? Oh my God, is it like like St. Paul, Minnesota? I don't know. It, it's in the prairie, so it's in the middle. Yeah, it's in the middle of the, of the country. country. It's like Ohio, but it's, it's like very a, cold. It's like a, but it's like a bigger city. It's fucking freezing there. Yeah. They call it Winter Pig. Yeah, um, it's, um, it's it's also the birthplace of Winnie the Pooh I remember do you remember those like Canada yeah heritage yeah, yeah there is, that it is the birthplace of Winnie the Pooh yes that's true oh <laughs> uh, yeah those commercial like those little uh commercials they always ran yeah. um yeah he was when they tried to there. teach about Canadian history that's right <laughs> um definitely I think that a lot of young Asian Americans have in common right this in this media so I yeah I was there it, it was not a place that was great for work so we moved to the Toronto area where the rest of my uh family was and I spent most of my life there um, and, you know, growing up, like I said, I grew up in a neighborhood that was a bit odd for an Asian American kid in Toronto. Um, I think a lot of kids were in areas where there might have been much more Asians around. So early formative years, I was around a lot more black and uh, brown kids, right, in school. And it wasn't until going into um, different school down south that there were a lot, I was exposed to white kids at large and also other Asian kids as well. Um, but... There is definitely this sense of 
not equality, like there was definitely something a little bit off, like not overt racism, like I wasn't facing, like I, I didn't get bullied a lot in school per se. Um, if I was bullied, I was really bullied for being a nerd, and not, <laughs> yeah. not for being Asian, right? If that makes any sense. But uh, I think what was interesting was that like, I, I because not a lot happened that was overtly racist or tied to race, I didn't really think about race as an issue until later in life. Yeah, because you said you... Like, your, your awakening what happened rather recently, right? Yeah, so I, I mean, like, just in the last couple of years, I think I became, become, became, like, increasingly aware that, like, some part of my ennui and, like, my anxiety and some, some amount of depression, honestly, came from something that was beyond just, like, what was happening in my life, right? It was, like, tied to identity in mm-hmm. some way, right? And I think, like, at that point, there was a lot of reflection to my life, you know, back home in Canada, in Toronto, um, and realizing that like a lot of, you know, these, these tropes that we see in Asian American, Asian Canadian narratives all the time playing out, right? Like being the kid with like the weird food in school and like feeling bad about that. Like one thing I definitely remember in high school was like, I was so embarrassed about my weird lunch. It wasn't, wasn't even that weird. Thinking back to it, it was like rice and shrimp or like rice and meat or something like stir fry. That's right? a fancy school lunch. <laughs> yeah, well, it was some, no, it was something my, my mom made for me, um, right? That I would bring to school and I would actually take it to the yearbook office because I was um, I, I worked in the yearbook club and like eat it alone because I didn't want to be seen with my white friends with their like sandwiches and pasta and shit, right? Like stuff like that that is a very typical narrative for Asian Canadians, but I definitely felt that embarrassment and I, I didn't really understand, didn't really click with me as to why you know, it was that bad. Like, some of it became almost pathological, right? Like, there's a station on the subway line in Toronto uh, called Spadina. That's where Chinatown is. And it got to the point where I realized that when I was getting off the subway at Spadina Station, I, I felt embarrassed mm-hmm. because I felt like people on the train who were, like, white and, and maybe judgmental were judging me for being like, oh, this guy is obviously going to Chinatown because he's Chinese looking. Like, it became, like, that That was the kind of, like, I don't know, I, I don't know if other listeners or others feel this way about how this sort of feeling of racism, even though you don't, you know, you're not experiencing overt racism, builds up. But that came out much later in life, right? Earlier in life as a kid in school, it didn't really bother me that much. Does that does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Uh, your thing about that train station, there's a... I guess it's a suburb. I don't know, if, or like a separate town. Or in Vancouver, there's a place called Richmond. Yeah, which definitely is no Richmond. Heavily, heavily. It's an enclave, right? That's the enclave for Chinese. Yes. Um. And I and I remember like, to if you're Asian and, and you have and you say something, I'm going to Richmond or Allah, I'm, I, you do anything. There is a certain connotation, not necessarily yeah. incredibly negative, but it's just kind of oh, I guess you're one of those people. And if right. you're don't want to be associated with that, I can see a lot of people did. Uh, you know, try, try not to try not to be upfront about it or, or try to avoid it altogether. I want to ask you, how um, how well did your parents assimilate? I assume they still live there. They, what do you mean by how well they assimilated? Like, like they, do they speak to you in English? Do they have a lot of, like, non- like, Vietnamese or Chinese? You know, you're Vietnamese, right? I'm Vietnamese Chinese. Okay, so, like, non-Vietnamese Chinese friends. They, I would say that on, on that kind of metric, they did not assimilate very well. We speak Cantonese to each other at home, uh, like for me, Chinglish, because like my Cantonese is terrible. <laughs> uh, <laughs> their friends are largely, they, they have some friends that are not like, you know, Asian, but a lot of them, they mostly stick with family and they mostly stick with people who are obviously 
uh, from the same place, like Vietnamese, Chinese folk as well. Um, so I would say not super well. Yeah, how about yourself? Not well at all. Like they, oh, okay. like they barely even had Korean friends. Right. And I think like Vancouver on its surface, uh, I mean, like as soon as I started school, there were lots of Asian kids in my mm-hmm, class. Mm-hmm. I never had to go. I hear some horror stories of people from like the Midwest or the South. Yeah, uh, it was nothing like that. Right. I think, but I think from early on, I developed this kind of awareness and resistance. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it was because of my parents. I saw them feeling alienated uh, from their own uh, home. Or yeah. I guess what I consider my home. Yeah. When I'm looking at, well, my parents don't feel at home here. Or like, it, it can't really be home to me. And in fact, uh, they, they left. They uh, Once I got into college and my brother got into college, uh, they they went back to Korea and that's where they live now. It, it was almost as if their time spent in Canada was like, it was done for you and your brother. It was part of like a journey to helping you guys get to a better future. Yeah. And once I, that was done, like the transaction was complete, they would be fl- free to go back home. Yeah, and I don't think their long-term plan was even to stay that long. Right. And in fact, I, I mean, like, my parents never really talked too much about their past, but I do know that we were quite close to moving to Sweden of all places all because right. of my dad's job. Okay. I remember these parts of my childhood when, when my dad would be gone for months yeah. to Sweden. Yeah. And I never really questioned it, but I, I think it was because there was a possibility he might might be transferred there or mm-hmm. or something like that so they i don't think they ever uh, intend to stay that long and they ne- certainly did not intend to permanently settle there okay um, dodge that bullet oh what the <laughs> for, sweden thing yeah the swedish bullet yeah for better or worse i don't can know you this. i mean c- could you imagine how different your life would be uh, if you had moved to sweden when you're yeah. like no, I, I, but i can't even imagine right it's, it's completely you not, yeah, you'd be a totally different person probably yeah. um and i would probably think i would i think i would have probably been right. worse yeah and a lot of like as I said, I don't ever want to disparage Vancouver. I do think it's right. a great place mm-hmm. to grow up. What I do, if I ever do complain about it, I, the reason I do that is I, I want to guard against complacency because as much as Vancouver loves to pat itself on the back for being so welcoming, and to give it credit, it has been an incredibly welcoming city yeah. if, if you compare it to a lot of other Canadian and American cities right? or any other country that purports to be like a... Uh, multicultural democracy mm-hmm. but if if its biggest minority population is an asian population that has only recently immigrated there mm-hmm. uh has not really organized itself into a real into its own interest group mm-hmm. and has never had the kind of <coughs> bless you has never had the kind of um kind of resistive attitude that say a lot of the american minority groups have had right well of course it's relatively easy to say oh we welcome you 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 know you you brighten up our culture and right. um, whatever. Uh, right. So, but now when we see more like powerful Asian immigrants, uh, especially the very very wealthy yeah. Chinese immigrants, and, and like to a lesser extent like a wealthy other Asian immigrants, like South Asian, mm-hmm. Korean, mm-hmm. Vietnamese. Once they start to come in, and they and we know that property prices are a huge deal yeah. in Vancouver. Let's talk about the Vancouver <laughs> housing crisis right now. See, maybe. I moved out uh, kind of before. Like, it was starting to, I think, starting to become an issue at that yeah. time, but I was long gone. Now I know there's like, like every now and then someone forwards me an article where you got like almost these Trumpy people yeah. in Vancouver saying, uh, like, like at this point, they're not even justifying it on economic grounds anymore because the typical anti-immigrant attitude is uh-huh. they're, they're draining on our economy, right. uh, they're taking our jobs, uh, etc. But what if they're adding to your economy? Uh, let, let's say that a lot of these uh, immigrants are coming in, creating businesses, and actually creating jobs. Mm-hmm. Then your only reason for being angry is they're not white, and they're just making me uncomfortable. And and they're making their stand on that. It's like, we have a right 
as like a white nation to simply want white people around. Well, I, so I don't think that's entirely true because unless you extrapolate, that, I mean, what, what is not, not true? So yeah, so on one, on one hand, there's the economic, you know, uh, push against immigrants, especially Asian immigrants. We've seen this historically across Canada and the states, right? But there's also this you have to kind of unpack this question of like what does it mean to not like someone because they're not white but you don't like them because they're not because they're not white not just because of the way they look but also because of the way they behave right and i think that there's a lot of especially with um uh mainland chinese immigrants right like culturally people from from even beijing behave fairly differently from people who grew up here in, in toronto right i actually have a friend who is from victoria near near vancouver he's chinese but like couple generations in in like as canadians and he's super upset about the new chinese coming in right and one thing he doesn't like about them is just that they like behave differently he never talks about the economics of it he always talks about how like you know they're dirty they spit they like don't know how to line up properly right they're like always like taking pictures of food at restaurants or whatever like all this all this like behavioral stuff so i think it's a little bit different just like they're not white or they're not like us uh or they're new but it's, it's also like they don't fit in I agree to a point. I think if, if it's so egregious that they're actually making places unpleasant, like say like spitting or like driving badly, that, that's another stereotype. Sure, yeah. I think those are easy to point. But like, for example, you like taking pictures of food. Why is that so irritating to some people? Like, honestly... And it's not the, like white people don't do that either, yeah, right? Yeah, on, on the like... face of it, it's a totally neutral behavior. It should not matter to mm-hmm. you. But I think what that means is it represents a group that is not deferential and does not have to be. And it's that not is deferential, what, as in they, they're not willing to assimilate it. Like they don't actually have to give a fuck about what you think anymore. And I think that's uh, what pisses them off. And whatever signal they give off to indicate that, that's what pisses them off. So when, when that signal is something as pretty gross as say like spinning everywhere, then yeah, that, like okay. everybody can get on board sure. with that. Keep but when it simply becomes they're here and they're not paying me proper respect. Right. Uh, and, and, and by respect, I don't mean like they're going around and shoving me around. They're just like, they're, they're not treating me like, they're not behaving like guests. Right. Essentially. Then right. I, th- I think that's at the root of it. Yeah. Like they're, they're acting like they're in their own country rather than they're in my country. Exactly. Right. Even though it, like they are in their own country because they have legally made it over here. They belong here now. Right. Yeah. They're, they're, that's, a, that's a definite tension. I, I suspect there's a lot of that in Vancouver that also, you know, gets exacerbated by the real economic issue around housing. I was listening to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, like a radio or, or like P- NPR in Canada, and uh, hearing the sound bites of people at like town halls in Vancouver talking about the new Chinese money coming in and uh, exacerbating the housing market right now. Really big topic, right? Lots and lots of these like vignettes and stories about these like white families who cannot afford to, uh, you know, live anywhere in the city they grew up in. And one clip that remo- that like really stuck in my head was this clip about uh, of, of this woman who was at this uh, town hall who was like really really upset about a white woman who was really really upset about not being able to talk about the problem with housing because they would come off as racist I do think that's a fair point because like I, housing like we're in New York City right now yeah major major topic here people talk about it all the time I mean I don't want to generalize I think most most of the people driving up the prices are probably white, probably Asian too, probably like, uh, I mean, like probably a ton of rich people from the right. Middle East as well. Right. But when we complain about it, uh, we don't racialize it. Right. So people just complain about 
rich Rising people. Is like a class, in any, like, any desirable city, this will be an issue. Right. And I think if she does feel as though she can't talk about it simply because somebody will just shout her down as being racist, I think that's a fair point. Um, this is a legitimate concern for any, as I said, any urban area, especially one that's so, that's ranked so highly in like livability indexes, like, like Vancouver, everybody right. wants to live there. Right. And now it becomes a fight for who, who gets to. So in comes this report from the end of last year that actually showed that I think like some small minority of housing, new housing in Vancouver is owned by the Chinese, like mm-hmm. under 10% is owned by now, I don't think even said Chinese, I think it said foreign buyers. And it actually turns out that the majority of this housing was owned by these super wealthy investment groups that would invest in real estate, real estate investment groups, right? I actually don't know what the composition of these companies are. I'm going to guess they're not necessarily all Chinese because they're Canadian. And so it actually points out that there's a, a class issue going on here, not a race issue, right? But they're using, to some extent, somehow race gets used as a way to cover it up, right? So, I, I mean, overall, what I'm saying is that, like, even in Vancouver, there's these tensions that get tied back to race and often pointed back to Asians. I think largely because of this large influx of Asian immigration, Asian investment in the area. Canada, in Vancouver, Canada, it, we're not doing necessarily much better here than a lot of uh, American cities. Yeah. I but I will say that I remember growing up, this was like an elementary school, like fourth or fifth grade. I remember, yeah. like, there would still be anti Asian sentiment among the kids specifically anti-chinese and remember back then these were immigrants from hong kong not necessarily very wealthy and there was still and i remember this is like file this under oxford's not so proud moments and i would still be able to get by by the fact that i was korean and not chinese how did the kids even differentiate did you wear a button that said no i I, was like it would would just be like like, like, kids would be making, uh, like, Chinese jokes and be like, oh, wait, Oxford's cool, he's Korean. Okay. And I didn't say anything. I was like, okay. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, so, I, there is that undercurrent. Uh-huh. I think it does get exacerbated by the housing thing, which is, I think, legit. But I also will not ever say that it's 100% because of, of, of the, the housing thing. I think, take that all away, there will still be this anti-Asian, for some reason, specifically anti-Chinese feeling it might go back to like the the history of the chinese laborers on the west coast yeah and 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 just like things that just get passed down almost like mimetically from generation to generation like for nobody sure. even knows where it came from but for sure they, they just feel it for sure but i i don't know if we can make a case that it's like significantly better than america yeah right? um i think one of the advantages of being american might be that uh i mean not that not that like education about uh, about racism is that great but i do think there is there there are just more touchstones for you to become aware of from an early age such uh, as what i mean like the civil rights movement for example okay. slavery there's less of a chance that you believe in this like post-racial myth perhaps what do you think post post-racial or yeah post, so post-racial as in like i don't see color or or that like what i'm saying is as a canadian you may be more susceptible uh growing up uh internalizing the idea that racism is largely a problem that's been solved and if it's a problem it's more like at the individual level of rudeness right i i totally agree that i think i was trying to get at this earlier but wasn't saying it well but like as a kid growing up in school it did not feel to me like racism was a big deal at least not for me right and like in my school there was like enough black kids and brown kids that like they didn't it didn't seem like they had particular issues later but it wasn't until reflecting back later that i realized that like actually under all that there was this oppression that I felt and I think fairly certain 
other Asian Canadians feel as well. And the narratives, again, the narratives are all very similar, right? There's um, there's this, this popular TV show now made by the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation called Kim's Convenience. Which oh, yeah, about, yeah, I heard of that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's made a lot of waves. And uh, the one of the leads in it, the, uh, the son in the family, he uh, wrote actually a pretty long op-ed or story and narrative in uh, uh, McLean's Magazine, one of our Canadian magazines. And That's like the time of Canada, right? Yeah, but it's kind of less good. <laughs> um, and, and he like the Newsweek of Canada. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember the exact details of what he was talking about, but a lot of it was the same. I think it was around like, he felt like his parents were, you know, it was about like the typical story of like Asian Canadian kid having cultural differences, like trying to, trying to like fit in between the cultures of home with his family and, you know, at school, at work, et cetera, right? And that he like really wanted to apologize to his mom and dad because he felt like he disrespected them in some cases because he really was trying to assimilate when they were not. Yeah, I, mean, I, I feel right? like that's a very universal... Universal, yeah. yeah. It happens, you hear these stories all the time in American Asian or Asian American stories um, and, and you definitely hear them in Canada too. So I think we're not the promised land. <laughs> Oh, speaking of Asian American, uh, something that you wanted to talk about, like the question of is there any difference between an Asian Canadian and an Asian American? Right. So on this podcast, we often and in our Slack or conversations amongst the Planet team, I often hear someone like Teen come in and say yada 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 Asian Americans and also Asian Canadians, like you know, because you and I are in the room and they feel like they need to in- include us. But I always, when I hear that, I always think like, do you really need to? Say Asian Canadians as well. Are we really that different, right? When I when I t- when I speak, I always just say Asian Americans, and I and implicitly mean us us as well because yeah, me too, right? Because um, our and you know to what we were just saying before, like are our stories really that different? Yeah, I mean, I don't really think they're that different. Although I may be a bad example because I did spend uh, quite a bit of my formative years in America, starting from college, right. and you know I live in America now. Yeah. Um. So I'm not quite sure, but. I think Canada is culturally similar enough yeah. that any difference is more like the the petty what is it the, the petty difference petty, petty narcissism petty narcissism of small differences is that is that the right term it's it's where you, what it's like I remember those uh I'm Canadian commercials those yeah beer the commercials. beer commercials yeah and that was just like they acted as though America was this hellhole and Canada was this so okay yeah but but that's that's the thing I think and we were talking about this just before recording but we were talking about how. I think there's this kind of unspoken concept of Canadian exceptionalism that is basically like we're a little bit special because we're not America. Like we don't embody all the negative things about America, such as the racism, especially the racism. How about right? how about if someone put it as the Canadian exception is its proud unexceptionalism? In that we're like okay with being number two. <laughs> That we are proud of being peace. Like remember, uh, like Canada's so proud of its peacekeeping core in the UN, very, right? Yeah, very. Uh, we it it's like the the proud slacker kind of. Uh, like if you, if America's the the guy who's always trying to, you know, uh, make money and and uh, yeah. you know get like get like the the hottest girls that drive the fastest cars. Canada's right. always like chilling in the background. And I think maybe that's that's it's that's uh, our conceit. And yeah. and but I don't think of it as a conceit. I think of it and so. For the listeners, Oxford is basically a like Canadian trader. Yeah, <laughs> I, he's I chosen just, to live in America. I describe myself as a self-hating Canadian. Yeah, and I'm I'm a I mean I'm a self-hating like this self-disparaging Canadian in that like I like to make fun of the this is, of okay. Us, but... As an example, this is how how bad it was in 1998 at the Nagano Olympics. I was rooting for the Czech Republic over Canada it, in hockey. <laughs> yeah, and remember when 
The checks beat them in the shootout. Oh, I was God. so happy. Well, because why? Okay, Canada really deserved it that year. They were so arrogant. Uh, they. Um, I mean, yeah, we were definitely arrogant because it was the first year that the pros were able to play in the Winter Olympics. Okay. And Canada was uh, just thinking. It was they were already uh, thinking. Of, uh, they were already planning their parade. Right. Um, <laughs> and they just got totally upset by the Czechs, led by my favorite player at the time, Dominic Hasek. Yeah. And the Czechs well, went on to win the gold. They actually beat Russia, I believe, in the in the finals. Okay. And the, yeah, that, the Germans did that this time. Uh, and they the, just the past. Oh yeah, pick, but they these were beat... these were the amateurs. Oh, I see. Or, I see. or at least they were the non-NHLers. There were a lot of European professionals. Okay, okay. Anyway, I, back to the topic. The difference is, I think that, like, in contrast, I have actually chosen to keep my career and my my life in Canada, despite having been asked by a previous company and my current company to come down to either Silicon Valley or New York because that is where tech is, right? Like, it's not in Toronto. It's not in Canada. Right, though actually that's changing quite a bit right now. But you know, it's it's purported to be in San Francisco area, and I've refused to do that for personal and political reasons. And I'm actually very defensive of our country. Like I, I <laughs> despite all I'm saying here about like we're very similar in a lot of ways. When I hear someone who is Canadian, especially, say, "Listen, like New York's a way cooler city. I choose to live in New York because," and I had a friend who said this: "If I were to stay in Toronto, I feel like I, my life is like I, I feel like I was a failure." Failure, and that's a little extreme. A little extreme, but they're, you know, they're very pro, you know, New York transplant. Um, so these are people who already live in New York? This is a friend of mine who lives in New York, okay. yes. And so when I hear that, and similar stories from Canadians who are expats now in New York or in, in the States, I get very defensive. I'm very defensive of my country. I do feel like there's this Canadian exceptionalism that I and other Canadians, you know, not embody, but want to defend because we don't just see ourselves as like, the neighbor, the cousin, the like, the dopey brother up north, right? We see ourselves as like very special in our own right. We don't have as much of you know we don't have a, as as amazing and sprawling an economy or you know massive cities like New York and whatnot. But we got some really great stuff up there, and and we love to we love to say that multiculturalism and a, like like racial acceptance is one of those things. I think we're starting to see that it's not perfect either, but we definitely see ourselves as distinct still. Americans and we talked a bit about this uh, eternal Asian American search for the promised land. I want to talk about uh-huh. this article that came out in BuzzFeed a few days ago. Okay, uh, it's by this writer Jennifer Hope Choi. Uh, what, what's the exact title? It was something like "I love Paris, but it didn't love me back." It, it's a very well written article. I enjoyed reading it. It's the, the the summary of it is so she studies abroad in Paris as a junior. Her family's kind of falling apart at this point. I, I think her parents are in the middle of a divorce. But even before that, she never really felt... She always felt kind of like torn, you know, you know typical second generation uh-huh. uh, dilemmas and all that. So she goes to Paris hoping to pretty much like find herself and, and be at home with, uh, with like the Paris that everybody dreams of and mm-hmm. pretty much spends a very lonely, kind of alienated semester there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess it, it kind of fed up her... Her realization that she can't just escape her Asianness, yeah, or yeah. something like that. So you, so it's funny. You sent me this article to read before we had this chat, and I actually had it saved already to read from a week ago when it first when it first came out because I I, I saw it and it re- immediately reminded me of this concept a friend of mine told me about called Paris syndrome. Oh yeah, she talks about it she talks about yeah she talks about it halfway through the article. And Paris syndrome is this kind of like psychological betrayal that you get. 
like a disillusionment that you get when you go to Paris expecting it to be like what you see in the movies and the posters and the songs and the, the mystique of Paris. But you show up and like it's a shithole and like there's dog shit everywhere and like people are smoking everywhere like and you know things are expensive and people don't treat you very well especially when you're foreign. Um, what was interesting was that that phenomenon was known to affect mostly Japanese women specifically. And I don't know, I, I, I spend very little time in Japan, I don't know how they think of Paris, but I imagine it's like so exaggerated in their minds that when they actually show up, they see it's not as welcoming or as beautiful as they thought it was, um, that they have this like, they're like shell-shocked. Have you, have you ever been to Paris? I've been to Paris twice, I've been, I was there just last year, yeah. What did you think of it? Uh, I loved it. I, I, went, I went the first time with uh, a girlfriend, uh, uh, way back, and then I went again recently for work, but also got to see a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the central touristy parts too. I love Paris. Um, Sacré-Cœur is one of my favorite buildings in the world. It's a beautiful city for sure, but you can also see, like, especially when you leave the tourist attractions, the kind of nasty parts of it, right, that are like, are not so great. The people I didn't find to be that rude or whatever it is that causes Paris syndrome, um, I also lived in Montreal, a Canadian, French-Canadian city um, that honestly was way ruder than, than uh-huh. Paris. So I, I really enjoyed it. Have you been there? I, w- I was there. I, I did a backpacking trip okay. around Europe. Cool. Uh, uh, like, I guess it's now. Oh, my God. It's been seven years. Uh, yeah. Paris, I was there for five days. Okay. It, it was mad. I was actually a much, much bigger fan of Germany. I spent three weeks there. Yeah. I love Germany uh, more Berlin than specifically or uh, Berlin, uh, Heidelberg, uh, Dresden. Yeah. Munich was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm a bigger fan of London. I, I've been to London uh, seven times in the last seven years. I'm going to be going there in four weeks from now, actually. Um, much prefer that as a European-ish city mm-hmm. compared to Paris. But I did like Paris. I, I, but I, at the same time, I, I fully understand what this woman was saying in her article, her story about Paris syndrome and disillusionment when you actually arrive, right? Yeah. Um, there's a very interesting part where she talks about how she wanted to write a novel while she was in Paris. That's right. And the protagonist would be an Asian girl right. adopted by white parents. Right, but she's not, right? She's, she's not. No, she's, 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 she's Korean she's, parents. Yeah, she's fully Asian herself. But right. I, I understand that, that feeling, uh, especially as someone who, ha- who does writing myself, especially mm-hmm. when you're younger, that desire to, okay, this is a little fucked up, but um, in I remember taking this uh, class in college uh, about fairy tales, uh-huh. and there's a, f- a common trope used in it. Uh, I, bu- I forgot what it's called. I think it's called the heroic fable. I'm not sure, mm-hmm. but if you look at a lot of like children's stories and fairy tales, there's usually a seemingly ordinary hero or heroine um, who is raised by like peasants or whatever. Got it. But then he or she eventually learns their real lineage is like royalty or, or like wizards uh, or Jedi or yeah, like Jedi. Uh, yeah. Um, and in this case, I mean, it's kind of reversed because she wants to go from a real parents to like fake parents, but they're, they're white parents. And I think there's something, oh, that, there's something that going there. So yeah. think how fucked up that is. That's fucked up. That's where, super fucked up. <laughs> where you think of your Asian parents as essentially the Dursleys and you, and you think <laughs> of white parents as the Potters. Yeah. And I, I think, I don't think this is, unique to her i do think that a lot of asians uh i remember um talking to a good friend of mine in college he's south asian mm-hmm. and i remember we were just like having you know like like a like a bro to bro talk right. uh, sometime and he told me about how when he was when he was uh younger whenever he get in arguments with his parents he's like oh man i wish my parents were white because yeah. to him uh and i think to a lot of asian kids like white parents are 
everything that your Asian parents are not. That's right. In a in a good way. That's right. So, and, and and that is fucked up. And yeah. I think she was honest about it in this article. But it, I mean, if I had any issue with the article, um, it's that like in the end, she she talks about how she I guess she kind of got over her Paris disappointment. Then she then she went to Korea and felt like she felt like an outsider there. Right. And I and I think this is where a gender difference will come in because I think that if she were an Asian guy, chances are then she or he will kind of retrench himself further into Asianness. Okay. Whereas she's an Asian woman, even if she's not accepted as like a true Parisian, mm-hmm. she, she still has like a, a pathway to whiteness that's not as readily available to Asian guys. I oh, think. as in she can date in or something? Like or, uh, basically, at, at, the, at the, I think, most intimate level. And and I don't mean to say this pejoratively, but I, I'm like 99% her partner is not Asian. If she has a partner, I think is almost certainly not Asian, uh, as a lot of um, like these these writers tend to be. And I don't I don't mean to say that as a critical way. I just mean to say that as uh, as an objective. That seems to be the trend. Yeah, it was, and, you know what's particularly interesting though about uh, France and Paris is that there's apparently there's these rumblings about how it's actually a more accepting country for Asian men because of this uh, movie that was made probably when like in the sixties. Oh, I think I know what you're talking called about. Called The Lover. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that movie. Yeah, I've not seen it, but I've heard that it's like. There's like a super hot Asian guy who has like this really fiery, passionate affair with this Parisian woman. And somehow this movie became a massive thing in France. And as a result, like the opinions of French women towards Asian men is not necessarily positive, but at least like not fully negative, like with, you know, long duck dong in American American movies. Yeah, so. interestingly, the, the woman who wrote that uh, novel is named Marguerite Duras. Okay. And she also, I think, wrote the screenplay for this movie called Hiroshima Mon Amour. Yeah, I've heard which that. Which is, I, I've seen it. Um, if you, I, I'm going to plug, <laughs> what, what is it? Um, Filmstruck. Filmstruck is Filmstruck. a great, great subscription service. <laughs> you get um, all the Criterion Collection movies. You, you, so any like, great old kind of movie, especially foreign, a lot of Japanese movies. Yeah. Um, Filmstruck, if you're listening to this, sponsor us or something. Yeah, we're not being paid for this right now. <laughs> I, I'm doing this out of the genuine love of my heart. But uh, yeah, that was one of the first movies I saw in there. And, okay. Uh, was that was that a pretty pro Asian movie? Or yeah, what? it's uh, it's about this French actress who goes to Japan. I believe like right after World War II, uh-huh. while she's shooting a movie, and she has this, uh, I guess, uh, relationship with a Japanese man. I think who recently lost his wife. It's yeah. one of the seminal movies of, of the the French New Wave. It, it yeah. was one of the first ones that were made. It's a very important movie. Anyway, um, but it's interesting you say that about Asian men because I think black women also have a view of France. Mm-hmm. that is kind of like if they think they're underappreciated in America, mm-hmm. they do see France as a, as a place where they are more appreciated. And I, really? I, I think you, if you look at some writings, you'll see this. I, I had some black female friends who always kind of talked of, of uh, Romantically France, of France. France, especially Paris. Yeah. As uh, I don't know where, uh, it's probably in, in some, rooted in some history or some, some like book or yeah. something like that. But, it it is interesting that it, there it is seen as this kind of more enlightened, less racist version of America, despite the fact yeah. that the, the the stereotype is that the French are very like not maybe not more racist than America, but much more like less ashamed about it, much more upfront. Okay. Yeah. Would you say then that I don't know the, what the actual numbers are, but like, is there an implication here that maybe black women would experience less would less likely experience Paris syndrome? And that they would be more accepted there, and it would actually be a smoother integration for them. A smoother I line. don't know. It would be pure speculation on yeah. my part. But I guess it is interesting why it is that 
in Japan, it's the women who are more susceptible to it. I, I, I'm going to guess it's related to how Paris is, you know, per portrayed and represented in Japanese culture and, and Japanese media. Because there, there's a certain relationship that Asian men historically have had with France as well. If you look at the a lot of the early impression like the impressionists were obsessed with Japan yeah I remember hearing there there are like Japanese painters who went there because of uh, like the Japanese uh, prints were so in demand right so they would go there I think they would marry uh, French women and, and become integrated into that society I see if you if you look at like all the kami like Ho Chi Minh like they all went yeah. to school that's right. School in yeah, Paris. I believe like Ho Chi Minh had like an affair with some some French woman. Okay. So, so I mean, I, I think like Asian men should be just as susceptible to over idealizing France. Uh, and yeah, so I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, you know, to the point of this narrative, uh, there are not so many narratives and stories like this article featured by BuzzFeed that are written by Asian men anyway. So it's hard to even know. But I think it's a bit of a wash and not entirely clear if one would integrate into Parisian society better than the other, right? You mean Asian men or women? Asian men or women, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I mean, I don't know enough about French society to make a yeah. call either way. Uh, but I if mean, you want to bring it back, to, if you want to bring this back to Canada, like Canada and Canadian Asians, what I can say is that like in Montreal, when I lived there, like this French, French Canadian city, I didn't really experience much racism at all compared to, or like even like, you know, subvert racism, like microaggressions and whatnot compared to, say, Toronto. In particular, in Montreal, that's because a lot of the fixation around divisiveness was on language. Exactly. I was about to say, is that because the French are too busy hating the Anglophones? Yeah, to, it's totally to, uh, it. Yeah. yeah, to be like racist or homophobic or whatever else, right? They they were just focused on the, the language line, not on the racial lines um, or you know other lines that could divide groups. Yeah. Uh, at least that's how I felt about it. Yeah, for those who aren't too well-versed in Canadian history, French, uh, Fre uh, like Quebecois separatism was a huge, a huge threat up until the 90s. Yeah. Uh, the, the referendum, right, barely was defeated. It yeah. was by like one or two percent. Yeah, there's a referendum to split Quebec um, as a province. Yeah, in the 70s, the, there was a terrorist group called the, the FLQ, I believe. Yep. Uh, that that uh, actually went around bombing and, and murdering yep. people. Murdered it. That, that was how uh, Pierre Trudeau, like, like the good Trudeau, <laughs> yeah. uh, really like made his name. Right. When he was able to kind of uh, take control of that. And I mean, the Bloc Quebecois was, was like a separatist party that until recently, like, they, I think they're gone now, right? Uh, uh, they're still a party, sort of, but, but like. Not... But when I was growing up, uh, whenever we'd like read about elections, like the Bloc Quebecois would always win yeah. Quebec. Uh, and like, I remember, uh, like the hockey player, uh, Maurice Rocket Richard, uh -huh. like, like he was like the, like the Jackie Robinson of French Canada oh, because really? he was a French Canadian and he was like dominant in the NHL and I think he was outspoken he was yeah. brash and and the the, the French Canadians really saw him as, as representing their own so yeah I think that plays a fact in in which maybe the Quebecois themselves feel as a minority right they're they're they got bigger fish to fry yeah. than, than Asians yeah I mean what I'll say there is that like in French Canada the trouble with integrating as a or fitting in as an Asian Canadian has way more to do with just language, like specifically speaking French, then it has to do with the way you look, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas in Anglo or English speaking Canada, a lot of the kind of oppression you may feel is very similar to what you may have heard of in America as well. Well, we're approaching an hour, I guess. So 
maybe this is a good place good to, to wrap it up. Good to wrap it up. Get back to drinking our beers, That's eating right. our veggie chips and <laughs> gummy lifesavers. It's a real party we got going up here. I know. Yeah, every time in New York. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, thanks for coming over. Um, so yeah. This, so this was the Escape from Plan A podcast. Uh, thanks for listening. You can find us. Uh, you can read our articles at planamag.com. We are also on iTunes and SoundCloud. So if you like us, please subscribe and rate us. And yeah, until next time, later. See ya.